Welcome to That's a Hard No, the podcast about learning to say no and set boundaries to live our best lives. I'm your host, Heather Drago. You may think because of this podcast that I'm a boundary setting expert, but I'm not. I'm an expert at struggling to set boundaries. But you know what? I'm working on it and it is getting easier. Follow along with me as I learn from fellow strugglers and experts so that you too can start saying no without feeling fear, guilt, or FOMO. Thatcher is a former ICU nurse diagnosed with a chronic illness who noticed how often her patients who found themselves in the ICU were struggling with severe and chronic stress. After burnout and a diagnosis, she chose to make radical shifts in her lifestyle to manage stress and now supports high achievers in recovering from burnout and alleviating stress points. Hi, Avery. Thanks for joining us. I am so happy to be here, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're welcome. I'm actually very excited for this conversation because I, I feel I'm, you know, I go through these cycles and I feel like I'm approaching burnout again. Um, can you start by telling me about what happened to you and, and how it jump-started this big change in your life? Yes, absolutely. So when I started my career as a registered nurse uh, back in 2010, working in these ICUs, I noticed really early on Mm -hmm. the impact of chronic stress Mm -hmm. on the human body. So being the super nerd that I am, dove into all of the research, and that's where I realized that I wanted to get out of the reactive side of medicine and into the proactive side. So in 2015, started building that business and building it up, and I was practicing what everybody said you should be doing. I was being mindful. I was doing yoga. I was meditating. I was the high achiever in me was like, check, 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 doing all the things. High five, gold star. But then at Christmas Eve, I was coming off the night shift and I looked my charge nurse in the eye and she was like, oh, you do not look well. Go home, feel better. I'll mark you down as sick for your next shift. Take care of yourself. And I slept for 20 hours. And then I slept for 20 hours the next day and 20 hours a day after that. Oh, wow. And then it was this 18-month journey of a lot of different painful procedures. One of the doctors noticed this mass on my neck, so I needed that removed along with half of my thyroid. And then all these different symptoms kept coming and going. And then finally, we settled into this diagnosis. And I was so frustrated because I felt like I was doing everything right. I was doing what everybody said you should be doing to manage your stress. And I still had this epic burnout experience. Wow. So again, being the super nerd that I was, dug back into the research and I figured out what the missing pieces of those puzzles were. But in the meantime, I lost so much of who I was. And so I made some really radical changes in that moment 
when I realized that I had to really grieve the person that I used to be. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest changes for me, and it's so interesting that we have both a Heather and an Avery here because I lived 37 years of my life as Heather. <laughs> and I realized when things weren't ever going to go back to any kind of compromise with what I saw my life as, who I saw myself as, the goals that I had, the job that my identity was so entwined in, Mm -hmm. I realized I had to let Heather go. And so I talked to my partner. We'd been married for three months at the time. And he was just like, really? Like, you, you think you need to change your name? Okay. Like, let's see how it goes. And so I spent time looking at these baby name blogs and I found the name Avery. And the first time he called me Avery, it felt like something settled in my body. And I Mm. felt at home again. Mm -hmm. And that was the big turning point moving forward for me when I chose to change my name. Wow. So you really had to just like let go of what you thought your life was going to be and all these patterns you were following. And it was such a, I have to separate from this. Changing your name was a big part of that. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned these puzzle pieces that you figured out were part of the problem. Do you mind identifying what some of those were? Yes, absolutely. So I think often when we talk about burnout recovery and stress management, we are so focused on the symptoms and we're not looking at it from that bigger, broader perspective. Mm -hmm. And so my favorite analogy to explain this is that we are all in a boat and that boat has holes and it's slowly sinking. And things like meditation, mindfulness, yoga, journaling, those are our bucket. And the more often we do those things, the more of those things that we do makes the bucket bigger, but we're still bailing ourselves out of a boat that is constantly getting more and more poured into it. Mm -hmm. So instead of really focusing in on what we just need to do, we also need to look at where are my other sources of stress coming from? What do I actually want? What am I being told I should want or should do? Where are those other sources of stress pouring into my boat? So I can look to either patch up some of those holes or slow down the flow. Because some of them, like for example, living in a capitalist society, I can't really change that, but I can slow down its impact on me. And there's nothing inherently wrong with capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's how I allow it to guide my decisions that then increases my experience of stress and increases my risk of burnout. So really the missing puzzle pieces are clarity, stress management, because that's always going to be a piece of this puzzle, and then energy management, and then time management. And time management goes so much beyond just time blocking and like, what are you doing with your time? It also comes into what do you say no to? Yes. So yeah, yeah. that is definitely a very important piece of this puzzle. Can you define for me the difference between stress management and energy management? Yes, definitely. And this is one of the topics that I think is so fascinating to talk about. See, my nerd is coming out again. I mean, I'm like all about this. I was (laughs) like totally diving into your website. I'm like, oh my God, I need this woman. Absolutely. So energy is both simple and not simple. It's either that we have energy or we don't, but we are complex beings as humans. So we can't quantify our energy as just one unit. So we have physical energy, which is what we typically describe our energy levels by. 
And then we also have mental energy. So this is our ability to make good decisions. Think clearly, not have that brain fog, have the motivation. We also have emotional energy, our ability to maintain a level head when things are difficult, to be able to hold space for other people, to not get irritable at little things. And then the last is our fulfillment energy. And so this means that we feel connected to a bigger purpose. And this is something that I see a lot in really high achievers that from the outside looking in, look like they have the perfect life, but then they still feel like something's missing. So there's one person that I was chatting with lately. Um, he is a concert pianist. He's played at Carnegie Hall. He's traveling around the world. He is excellent at what he does, but he just feels unfulfilled. And so it was starting to filter out into other areas of his life as well because that fulfillment energy was so drained. So when we think about stress management, that's more dealing with the physical responses of stress that our body is. When we look at energy management, this is more about the human experience. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds to me like energy management and time management kind of go hand in hand with alleviating stress or like controlling our stress or managing stress. Am I am I on to something there? Or? Yes, okay. and that's why it's a puzzle. Because yeah. it's not like each of these are different silos yeah. that are all yeah. on their own. They all interlock. And this is where learning more about your purpose and your identity and what you really want can help you navigate how to put all those puzzle pieces together and know what to say no to, what to say yes to, how to navigate your life to make sure that you are living your life and not somebody else's. Going back to your story, how did you start saying no? What are the different ways you've been challenged to say no to kind of plug those holes in the boat um, and you know keep from sinking as fast? Absolutely. So one of the biggest things that I did, aside from changing my name, that really helped me figure out how to plug those holes was to redefine high achievement. Because when we define high achievers, we think of these are the people that can do more and achieve more and, you know, like climb those ladders, show up in more spaces. And I really identified that way. And so I had to really sit down and say, okay, so high achievement for me, what does that actually mean? And now I see high achievement as my ability to create a ripple effect of compassion that expands beyond my initial circle of influence. And so I can see that happening when I show up as the best version of myself when I work with people, when I show up on things like this, or when I do speaking engagements. It's really about what's the way that I can impact one person that it then ripples out to other people. Mm -hmm. So by changing that, it helped me realize that I needed more boundaries around my energy levels, my health, because I had lost so much of that and I needed to make sure that I supported what I had. And that is something else I think that we really need to understand that it's not about trying to ignore something or push it away or hide those deep emotions. It's more about accepting them. And when I say accepting them, a lot of people think that that means settling. You're just like, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. It's here. I mm -hmm. now have this disability. Fine. But and now I can't this do this and I can't do that and I can't do this as exactly. opposed to I'm going to choose the things I want to do. Exactly. And also, instead of saying, well, I can't do this, to say, I'm going to support myself through this. Mm -hmm. So I have this group program that I bring people through. And every time I 
brings a new group through, I always do it with them. And so there's this one exercise where you write a grief letter. And it's either to somebody from your past, a different version of you, uh, you're writing a grief letter to the life that you thought you would have had by now, whatever it would be. And so I decided to write that grief letter to my illness. And a really important aspect of this is that you get angry, especially as women and especially as highly sensitive people. And really just in general, anger is seen as a negative emotion, um, which I don't believe that emotions are either negative or positive. We can get into that. But generally, anger is seen as this negative emotion. But it's actually really healing. And so I was doing this exercise and I often write on my treadmill. So I was there just typing on my treadmill, little treadmill desk, writing it out. And then I got really mad at my illness and was just getting so angry, typing so loud. And then the moment shifted where I realized that this illness is a part of me and all parts of me deserve love and compassion. And so that moment when I said to this part of me that at that moment I hated, And I said, you know what? I love you. You're here. Let me bring you in. We're going to figure this out together. And then two years of grief happened all in like 30 seconds. And I was at this puddle on the floor and I was ugly crying. And there was so much release because instead of fighting what I was trying to not accept, Mm -hmm. I invited it and welcomed it in. So I feel like that shift is such a powerful thing that is so hard to do. But it is so beautiful when it happens. Yeah, it sounds pretty cathartic. And I can understand what you're saying. And, you know, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, like, back in the early days when people were first starting to diagnose it. And I understand now that, like, 12, 15 years before then I had it. Like, it just was not something people knew about. And so for a long time, I would, you know, lament that I couldn't do certain things or that I hurt on certain days or that I was limited in some way. And now I kind of approach it as like, that's just me. I'm, I require more sleep than other people. And I require these kinds of things. And, um, you know, I've adapted my lifestyle to it just because I love myself and I want to take care of myself. And it's just, that's just part of me, right? Just like brown eyes are part of me. So Um, yeah, there's a certain acceptance that comes after you kind of let some of that stuff go. And I think you shared something really important there because you said, I need more than other people. But what if we lead by example, showing what listening to your body actually looks like to all of those people that are just like, I only need five hours of sleep. I disagree. Yeah. But like, why can't we show people what actually honoring yourself looks like? Yeah. And unfortunately, it sometimes comes to needing an illness to learn how to do that. You know, you talked about our capitalistic society. And I think even if we're not thinking in terms of money, we're very competitive with each other, right? It's that what I consider very toxic hustle culture that, you know, you just need to be going, going, going. You need to get up at 5 a.m. and exercise and start making your plans for the day and do your morning pages and just all the things, right? And um yeah, no, life is not an endurance contest. It's not. It's just not. And just because something works for someone else doesn't mean you have to beat yourself up because you can't do it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not my best until at minimum 9 a.m. So I just I do <laughs> not schedule any meetings before 930 if I can help it just because I just know I need two cups of coffee and a breakfast in my stomach. And, you know, I just need to, time to like wake up and clear the fog and all that stuff. And um, yeah, I don't care if 
Gary V says I should be up at 5 a.m. and making phone calls. <laughs> I just don't Agreed. care. Agreed. That sounds awful. Right? Like, so awful. And yeah, it's a lot an of those, Iron like, man, you know? Right? Like, a lot of the Miracle Morning things, I'm just like, why would you do that to yourself? Yeah. Even if you're, like, an able-bodied, healthy person. Like, why, why is that a good decision? But for some people, it is, and I can respect that. Sure. But I think with routines, especially morning routines, like you said, there's this, like, capitalist pressure to make sure that you are productive. Yeah. And you need to have these certain things, because these are all what the evidence shows is really beneficial for you. And I think... The big shift for a lot of people is when you stop doing what you think you should be doing and Mm -hmm. you really start focusing in on how do you want to feel. So for Mm -hmm. your morning, after you've kind of done your wake up thing, how do you want to feel? Because for my partner, he was trying to get his workout done in the morning, do some journaling, have this uh, tea practice and all these different components to it. And I was just like, but you like a slow morning. None of those things sound like a slow morning. And so when he shifted from doing these things that he thought he should be doing to what actually gave him that feeling of peace and calm and grounding to start his day, now he feels so much more ready to tackle the day. Because really our morning routines aren't about getting more things done. They're about tuning the orchestra. You don't want your orchestra to start with everybody playing in whatever key that they've decided to start in. You want everybody on the same page. So tune your orchestra in whatever way that works for you. I love that analogy. That's great. You got to warm up, you know? Exactly. I warm up my brain with certain like crossword puzzles and things in the morning. Just like, okay, I got to wake my brain up so I can start thinking. And yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And I love, I love, I don't know if, I don't want to hound on this for too long, but I love your notion of redefining what high achieving is. So it's not about how much money you're bringing in or how much money you're making or how big your house is or whether others see you as a leader in your field. It's more about what are you contributing or what are you, what difference are you making? And for each person that's a different, you know, the sphere of influence may be smaller, maybe bigger, but I I just love like rethinking what that is. I think it, made such a big difference for me and it's something that I get all of my high achievers to do is to just redefine it in whatever way makes sense for them. Sometimes that still brings in the original definition of high achievement. But like with so many things in our life, we need to not be doing what somebody else, society, whoever, whoever they are, not what they say we should be doing or should be feeling or however that looks. We really need to be focusing more and tuning inward. And that is really hard, especially if people are in burnout and if people have a history of trauma, tuning in can actually trigger some of that nervous system injury. So we need to make sure that if we're starting to do that kind of work, that our body's actually ready for that and that we're not going to cause more harm. So on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. That's a Hard No is brought to you by Clever Girl Marketing, my full-service agency specializing in smart, strategic marketing solutions for businesses and nonprofits. Okay, so you're probably wondering, Heather, what's with the podcast about boundaries? Why not marketing? Well, maybe in the future, but for now, it actually does relate. So bear with me here. Smart marketing, strategic marketing, 
requires knowing what to say no to and why. Businesses and nonprofits get inundated with marketing options and offers every day. We help you cut through all that noise, focus on your specific needs, and develop actionable strategies that are doable and actually make sense. Whether it's websites, SEO, email, social, or traditional channels, we're experienced in all of it. So if you need help figuring out your marketing, visit our website, clevergrowmarketing.com, and get in touch. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris, and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who have overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection, and interview top thought leaders, game changers, and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover, and how to be brave. And we're back with Avery. So we talked about kind of how capitalism and our kind of expectations, either externally, internally, you know, of of achieving success can can kind of lead us down the path towards burnout. But I know there's also sort of um, generation gaps of like expectations, like what, you know, I'm in the sandwich generation where I've got, you know, an old elderly parents and then I have my young adult children. I'm not quite, you know, mine aren't school age anymore. And just managing stuff between them is is a lot. And now we have a couple of health crises going on <laughs> in the family. So it's just been a lot, right? And so I'm mm-hmm. in that sort of caretaker mode. I'm running my business. I'm doing this podcast. Like, I'm just like, I'm feeling it, right? So I wondered if you could share your thoughts about kind of like generation gaps and what older and younger generations expect. I mean, I know this is a thing we're all feeling, but we all have different thoughts about it and what's okay and not okay. Sure. Yes. So it's so interesting that you called yourself the sandwich generation because that is actually one of the core components of my final nursing paper that I wrote about this generation that feels like they're sandwiched between aging parents and potentially raising children and the caregiver burnout that is present in that role is so profound because there is so much internal obligation. And I think a lot of that plays into this as well. But when we look at the different generations that are kind of involved in that conversation, the baby boomer generation grew up in a society that was very much pushed through. Don't talk about it. Don't complain. Suck it up. Figure it out. Your parents figured it out. You should figure it out. And then moving more into our generation, where it became more compassionate, but still only talk about it with certain people, not everybody, because nobody wants to hear all of your dirty laundry. You need to make sure that you keep that in. And you're still going to try to do as much as you possibly can because you'll feel guilty if you don't. Exactly. There's still that sort of move from that baby boomer kind of generation into ours. The next generation um, kind of swung the other way a little bit. And it's, you know, like we're in the course correction phase here with the the Xennials and the Gen Zs, but really the millennial group seems to have gone quite the other way where they are so much more vocal about what they're going through. And the difference is, is they are looking to others. Not, this is a very big generalization, I will own to that, um, but 
generally they voice it in the hope that someone else will fix it. And I think where our generation came through in a like, you don't talk about it and you fix everything yourself Mm -hmm. into the, okay, I'm going to talk about everything, but it's not my problem. And I need the government. I need society. I need other adults. I need other people. I need other people to cater to what I need. And so we need to kind of find that middle ground now because really the burnout experience in the millennials and the Gen Zers is so much younger than the burnout rates show up in our generation. Yeah. And I think also when you look at the kind of pressure that is surmounting as our generations progress, you have people that are in sort of middle school, they're in grade eight, grade nine, they have to already be thinking about which university they're going to go to, what job they're going to get after, and if that's going to be able to support any kind of lifestyle. And there are so many people that have multiple degrees that are working minimum wage, which is not a living wage, in so many spaces. So you also can't just get sick and go to the doctor and have them fix it. The doctor is saying you need to improve your nutrition. You need to lose weight. You need to do these things, um, manage your stress. Uh, but bye, I only have 10 minutes to talk to you. So you're going to have to figure that out on your own. And then you can't just you know work until you're 65 and then retire and trust that the pensions or whatever is in place is going to be enough to support you because it's probably not going to be. So now you've also got to think ahead to that. So there's so much more pressure that continues to build as our society continues to age. And I'll add to that, like when you're talking about those late middle schoolers, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, right? Not only are like, you need to think about what kind of job you're going to have, and we're going to go to school and all that kind of stuff. But you need to start doing all these things now so we can put it on your record of like all these activities you were in and all these achievements you've made and these super high grades. And so you need a tutor and you need to take this test and you need, you know, you got to be in the orchestra and you got to like, I mean, I could see it all my, and then, you know, the moms are stressed out taking their kids everywhere, doing all these things. The kids are burning out. And, and I remember when my youngest was graduating they'd um, won a scholarship to go to art school and um, from a community group in our in our area. And so there was this big ceremony where all these people came. And there were these specific kids that kept being called up for all these achievements they'd made. Like there was like a couple of girls, a couple of guys who like basically had been in all the clubs, won all the awards, got all the scholarships, all the things. And my youngest would turn to me and be like, they're the most miserable people you've ever met. They're so mm-hmm. they're so burned out. They're so angry. And like, I, I don't even know if they're going to make it through college. Um, and I feel like there's so much pressure put on people to like achieve so early that I think people are burned out in school, like before mm-hmm. they even get into a career. Agreed. And I do lots of talks to even older elementary schools, talking to them about managing their stress. Wow. And these are like eight and nine-year-olds, and they are already feeling all of this external pressure to achieve and to be better. And so I think it's really this pervasive problem. The World Health Organization has said that chronic stress has been an epidemic for two decades now. Mm -hmm. When you look at the number one reason why people go to the doctor, it is stress-related concerns. Mm -hmm. And still, though, 
we're being told to practice mindfulness, <laughs> which really, when you look at it, do yoga yeah. is ignoring the problem. Mm-hmm. People that are, especially in corporate mindfulness and the MIC mindfulness that's being sort of trained in the corporate space, it's training people to ignore the systemic problems and to accept them. And like in the yucky acceptance of settling, because you're turned to look at whatever's happening, notice it and release judgment. But sometimes that judgment, sometimes that frustration is really good information. So like we talked about before, emotions, I don't see as positive or negative. I see them as information. Yeah. So jealousy, for example, this is one of the clearest examples of how emotions can become information. When you are jealous and you're pushing yourself to do more because this person has something which you want. And instead of really just sitting in that jealousy, dig into it to be like, so why am I actually feeling jealous? What do I feel is lacking? Because maybe it is the award that they had, or maybe it's the perceived love that they're getting because of the award. And so now we need to see, okay, so what is actually missing in my life? And how can I give that to myself? Not how can I find somebody else to give that to me, but how can I give that to myself? So when we look at the different emotions that are coming up for us in this high pressure environment that we all live in, we need to see the information that's underlying that initial emotion. Yeah. Wow. I, I agree. I think emotions are information and and sometimes that angry emotion, that resentful emotion, the all those things, that's that's the cue to say, okay, why am I feeling this way? Maybe I need to cut back on something. Maybe I need to set boundaries. Like, you know, when you're talking to kids and about managing stress, are you talking with them about it's okay to say no to things? Is that something that's an issue for them at that young age? Definitely, especially when it comes to extracurricular activities. Oh, yeah. Because if their parents are saying like, yeah, we need to keep you busy and all of these different things, and just to be able to have some of those difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And it feels difficult at the moment, um, but really it's about showing love to yourself and to the other person when you set a boundary. It's not trying to keep somebody out it's showing them how you want to keep them in your life. I love that. That's great. I love that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so for eight and nine-year-olds, um, not as possible to push your parents out of your life. Uh, and I actually really don't recommend doing that almost at any situation. Of course, there's always exceptions to the rules. But really, it's about looking into what you really want in the situation, what you're not getting and then looking for a way to both manage your own potential triggers that is going to go happen in this conversation, and then also anticipate the other person's triggers. Because it's not about, you know, sugarcoating it or, or blending it to make sure that this person doesn't get triggered. Sometimes it's as simple as acknowledging it and just saying, you know, I know that this might be really difficult for you to hear because of this but I'd just like you to know that this is coming from this space and this is what I need. So an example of this is when I told my parents that I was changing my name, the name that they had chosen for me. Mm. And so I was beyond nervous. Like I was shaking like a leaf. You could hear it in my voice, the amount of nerves that were just shaking my entire body. And I had practiced what I was going to say. I knew, especially for one of my parents, that it was going to be really big trigger for them because they often see us deviating from what they wanted for us as a slight Mm -hmm. because 
their thoughts were not good enough for for us. And so I acknowledged, like, I know that this is weird. I know that the name that you chose for me was a really important decision and that you made it with love. But here are the reasons why I need to change my name. And after I decided to do this and after I've tried it out, this is the benefit for me and this is why I'm going to keep it. And so it was just acknowledging that I knew this was going to be difficult for them. And that whole conversation went so well. I was shocked how smoothly it went. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, there was slip ups at the beginning of people calling me Heather instead of Avery. But it's just laying down the groundwork and helping people understand your why. One of the things that I always try and make sure that I don't do is to never let somebody assume my why. Mm, yeah. And this I've done all throughout my career, especially, you know, as a nurse, because let's be real, nurses often are carrying bigger workloads than maybe should be safe. And so you're often running around. And so even though you've promised somebody you'd be back at this time to help them with this, uh, maybe that's not possible. So it's really just not letting somebody assume your why, putting your foot in the door and saying, hey, I know I said I'd be here. Here's why I can't. I'm coming back to you. I've not forgotten. And that can be done in so many different situations. In our corporate world, you said you would follow up with something by the end of the week. It's Friday at 4.30 and it is like, that's not happening. Send a quick email. Just explain why. Hey, I got caught up in too many other priority things. This is still very important to me and to you. I'm going to be prioritizing this block of time. It's already booked off. Here's where it's going to be happening. So really, I think with boundaries in all scenarios, it's really about understanding you, understanding them, and then making sure that nobody assumes your why. I love that. I think that's that's a great a great place to start um, that conversation. So um, you talked about stress, burnout, and trauma. Yes. Right. So like to me, I kind of see those as like points on a spectrum, <laughs> you know, like one turns into the next. But I know that there are specific um, differences, and I wonder if we should talk about that just so people kind of have the right language in their head as they're thinking about these things. Yes, thank you for that, because Instagram uh, pop psychology has absolutely redefined what trauma is. Yeah. And so I think, especially when we talk about, oh, that was a traumatic day, um, that kind of language is not actually representative of what trauma truly is. So stress is the response, the natural response in our body that helps us become successful through whatever it is that we're moving through. So our heart beats faster, so that way we can get more oxygen to our brain. We become stronger because the nutrients and blood and oxygen go to our big muscles. So there's all these different ways that our body is just like, hey, this person needs to be fast, strong, and thinking clearly to be able to save themselves. Uh, So our body is naturally built to set up for that response. Modern day stress does not match with what our body was designed to do. So this is where we start to move into the different stages of stress. So initial stage is the stage of alarm. And that's the like, holy smokes moment where you see like something dangerous coming at you. You feel that rush of the epinephrine and norepinephrine, those adrenaline hormones, and you get yourself to safety in some way or another. And then the stress switch turns off. And so that's what our body was really designed for. But because of the chronic stress that all of us are exposed to in our day-to-day life that don't really go away, those holes in our boat, we move into that next stage, which is the stage of resistance. 
And so this is where we can be on the stress curve, kind of at the top, balancing back and forth, kind of in that peak performance space-ish. And this is where if we're bailing out our boat fast enough, we're able to kind of maintain that. But we're complacent with soggy pants the whole time. We are complacent with soggy pants the whole time. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to be adding that into my metaphor. I love it. So good. So we're sitting there with soggy pants, but we're doing okay. Life, however always seems to know the exact moment to throw that extra weight and that extra wrench in. And that's when the scales get tipped. And this is where we move into the final stage of the normal stress response, the stage of exhaustion. And so this is where there's a tipping point. Absolutely. So the tipping point for the stage of exhaustion into burnout is when we either don't stem the flow of stress coming in or we don't make our bucket stronger. And so when we finally move into the stage of burnout, this is where our body can no longer produce the energy that we need to maintain this chronic stressed out state. And there's a lot of really great systems that try and help us keep in that stage of resistance. Um, Cortisol, for example, it's often talked about in the media as this really negative stress hormone. I see cortisol running around your body with a little superhero cape. Because it's trying to rally the troops and get every little bit of energy where it needs to go. And it's talking to your liver to get it to produce more of its internal energy. And really, we just need to understand like where we are in that scale to be able to help us prevent from getting into burnout. Now, with burnout, most people think of burnout as a cycle. We start up at the top where we're feeling fine. Then we kind of move into that stage of resistance, stage of exhaustion, and then into burnout down here at the bottom. And then... We maybe take a couple of days off, we kind of rest, something shifts, we start to feel a little bit better, and then we think we come back up to the top. But the truth is, burnout is not a circle, it's a wave. So we start up here, and we're in peak performance, and then we crash into burnout. And then we start to feel a little bit better, but we don't come all the way back up, and then we crash again into burnout. And then we get a little bit better, and then we crash back into burnout. And then we start to hover around the burnout line. Mm. So we get a little bit better. And then it seems like, oh, I feel like I was just burnt out. Why am I burnt out again? I can never get ahead. This stress just seems to keep piling up. That's why is we never actually get all the way back up to the top because we don't plug any of those extra holes. We don't look at the bigger picture. We don't check in with our energy. So with that, that's where stress and burnout are related. Now, before I go on to trauma, do you have any questions about that? Because I know I just talked a lot. No, yeah. So like, what are some of the ways to strengthen the bucket? Great question. The first thing that we all need to do is to become more clear on what we actually need to do versus what we want to do versus what we think we should be doing. And so one of the many exercises is just to create a brain dump list of everything that you have going on. And then you put those into different categories of things that you really enjoy, that give you fulfillment or that support your fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And I'll expand on that in a second. Or you look at things that like need to get done Mm -hmm. that really don't support your fulfillment, but they just are necessary of being an adult in life. And then there's things that you want to do. And those are the things that are maybe missing in there. And then you also want to make sure that the things that you should be doing, quote unquote, should, are things that fit into the want to do category or add to fulfillment. Because a lot of the things that we're told that you should be doing uh, maybe don't really work for you, which is something like meditation, mindfulness, don't work for everybody in the traditional sense. So we need to really start to explore what works for us. So my former co-host, Sarah Saunders, she always talked about living in alignment with your values, right? 
And so to me, I always think of those negative shoulds, those imposed shoulds. And, you know, I think people need to make sure those shoulds are in alignment with their values. So just because someone says you should do something, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe maybe that's not in alignment. Exactly. And so that's where the clarity piece is so important, like you just said, to make sure that you know what you value, know what you're working towards, understanding all of those components. And so that's where things that support our fulfillment that maybe don't actually directly cause fulfillment, uh, like doing laundry, cooking. I am a terrible cook because I really don't care. Like I, I'm in the kitchen and I'm just like, I don't know, chop. It's a finely chopped. I'm just going <laughs> to mash it and it's fine. That supports my fulfillment because it allows me to be the person which I need to be and it fuels me. But it's not something which I really want to do. So that's where understanding, making sure that the things either fall into some of those categories to actually support what you want. Mm-hmm. Super duper important. Yeah. Before we end, we talked about stress. We talked about burnout. Now let's let's define trauma. Sure. So trauma is actually an injury to the nervous system. So where stress and distressing experiences are absolutely challenging, absolutely they deserve support and help, but trauma actually injures the nervous system. And so this means that our window of tolerance becomes quite narrow. And so the window of tolerance is where our bodies can naturally exist and move through different stressful and distressful experiences without having the strong fight or flight, freeze or fawn response triggered. And so with trauma, our window becomes so incredibly narrow. And this is where things like meditation and mindfulness can actually be very harmful in that case. I was leading a group meditation class and about three minutes in or so, I saw this one person was starting to hyperventilate. They were starting to kind of get agitated in their movements. And so I just came by and like gently tapped their toes and got them to sit up and I gave them a different exercise. And at the end, I was chatting with him and he said that he didn't know what happened. He hadn't been in combat for years, but it triggered a traumatic memory from when he was in combat in the military. And so the meditation, which was beneficial to most of the people that were there, was actually really dangerous for him because his nervous system injury got reopened in that moment. And Mm. so really, it just triggers those protective mechanisms for us. So for me, myself, when I have flare-ups of my PTSD, I remember I was sitting down to meditate because I was feeling incredibly anxious and stressed in a moment. And then all of a sudden, I was out walking my dog. I was 20 minutes away from my house, and I had no idea, no recollection of how I got there, which route I took to get there. I had dissociated that entire time because I sat down to meditate. So when we talk about trauma, it is not just something that is distressing. It actually really, truly does injure the nervous system and requires qualified help to learn how to treat that and how to manage it because like with so many deep injuries surface level healing can definitely help but there's always the potential for that wound to get opened again wow so much is resonating here i feel like i could talk for a whole another hour like i I have so many questions i was diagnosed with ptsd as a young woman um 
based on some childhood experiences. And so I'm like, I'm hearing a lot of things and I'm recognizing a lot of things. So I would love to continue the conversation again in the future and, you know, kind of go in different directions. I love your website. You have tons of resources on there, yoga and meditation and all the things you've touched on. But then there's also, you know, how to contact you and get some guidance um, to work through some of these things. You have this default survival skill quiz, which I took. Surprise, surprise. Uh, It told me my default is over committing. (laughs) You're in good company, my friend. I was like, yep. Yeah, it's and I love that like the response. One of the you know the screen that comes up after it said, if you you know it says a number of things. If you uh, constantly feel like not enough butter, not enough butter scraped over too much toast. Oh my god, that was like oh yeah, that's me. So um, I thought that was really interesting, and um, I'm I'm excited to dig more into your website and and see more resources. So I encourage people to go there. Can you share your URL with everybody? Sure. You can find me at becomingavery.com. Right. And I'm also the same on all social media channels as well. And you have a couple of podcasts. I do. Yes. So one of them is called The Truth About Burnout. (laughs) And so it is not your standard self-help stress management podcast. We don't just talk about meditation and mindfulness and all the things. We dig into some of those holes in your boat and understanding what they are because you can't fix a problem you know nothing about. So mm-hmm, we're going to mm-hmm. shine some light on those so you can start to work on those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And then I also have another podcast. It's called Inner Stillness, Outer Chaos. And so this one is more of a personal podcast. I share more personal stories, but it really just opens up different ways to find some calm mm-hmm. in the wild, wild world that we live in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I'm excited. I learned about them and I'm subscribe and can start listening so i'm very excited um avery thank you so much for this conversation i like as i said earlier i feel like we could go on and on and on um but i i think you shared a lot of really insightful observations and information and and listeners you know i hope you go on your website and uh learn more well thank you so much heather i really appreciate it and yes i think we need to continue this conversation in some way or another okay so that's it for now Thanks for listening. That's a Hard No is a production of Clever Girl Marketing, my little agency in Cleveland, in partnership with our friends at Evergreen Podcasts. Many thanks to our amazing team, including Maura Del Rosario, our production and marketing coordinator, Noah Fouts, our amazing producer, editor, and composer who wrote our theme music and performed it with his band, The Big Leagues, and our new video producer and editor, Kay Holmberg. You can find show notes and resources on our website, and you can find other fun stuff on our socials. We're Hard No Podcast, and we're now on YouTube, so check us out there. Make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite listening platforms, but especially Apple. Can you please do us a favor? Give us a rating and review so more people can find us and learn how to say no. So until next time, thanks for listening. And remember, saying no isn't just okay. Saying no is key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. So do it. Find your no, then say it with me. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. 
Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.